Oftentimes, you'll hear people criticize Christianity today for being sexist toward women. Christianity, some think, is a regressive movement. If you don't know what regressive is, it's just the opposite of progressive. In other words, Christianity today is going backwards when it comes to women's rights or women's roles. It's actually really interesting criticism because when the church began, when Christ came onto the scene, he was amazingly progressive when it came to women. Rather, it was the ruling Jews of the time whom we would today think of as being sexist toward women. Not biblical Old Testament Judaism, but rather the post-exile Judaism became very sexist. These Jews went beyond God's word and started creating rules and regulations for women. I'll give you some of those. For one, women were prohibited from studying Torah, which was their scriptures. For them to do so would be to profane that which was sacred. Also, when the new temple was built under, under Herod, the religious leaders insisted that it be constructed with separate facilities for women. And just as they wanted the Gentiles segregated to the outer courts, so they wanted the women kept away, kept segregated to the outer courts. Furthermore, women were not qualified to appear as witnesses in court. And men could divorce their wives whenever they wanted, for whatever reason. But women could not return the favor. And perhaps the most notorious statement is found in the Talmud, which is a non-biblical Jewish document. And there, Jewish men are instructed to pray three times daily this. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a heathen, who has not made me a slave, and who has not made me a woman. All this stands in stark contrast to Jesus when Jesus came on the scene completely counter to that Jewish culture at the time, he welcomed, loved, valued, and accepted women. Jesus had women disciples, not among the twelve, of course, but there were women who followed, supported his ministry. He healed numerous, numerous women. He told many parables highlighting women as well. There's one woman who had a, a bleeding hemorrhage for over 12 years. No one could heal her. No one could help her. And due to her condition, she was cut off because to the Jews, nothing was more defiling than bleeding, blood. She was defiled. She was unclean permanently. No one would dare touch her. So what did she do? She saw Jesus, and so she came up and she touched him. And because of her faith, she actually was healed. Jesus turned around, and how did he respond to that? Did he rebuke her? Did he... Chastised her and said he affirmed her worth. She was not an untouchable. She was not an unclean outcast like society had labeled her. He lifted her spirits. He called her daughter. He told her that her faith had saved her. Remember the woman at the well, John chapter 4. This, this woman, she was like a triple whammy. She was a woman, she was an adulteress, and she was a Samaritan. But here you find Jesus going so far as to asking her for a drink out of her cup. And it's no wonder that the disciples, when they returned, they were amazed that Jesus was talking to this woman. You don't do that. Rabbis don't do this. You don't talk to women. You don't discuss theology with them, especially if they're adulteresses and Samaritans, and you don't drink from their cup. You just don't do this. But Jesus ignored all these social constraints because he saw a person ready for redemption. And she was. She came to accept Christ as the Messiah that day and even went on to tell other people about Jesus. Or finally, who can forget the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8? The ruling Jews, they brought in this woman before Jesus because the law demanded that she was to be stoned for her crime of adultery and they wanted to test Jesus with this. The law also prescribed death for the man, by the way, but apparently they let him go. They just brought the woman. Jesus responded, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to, th to throw a stone at her. One by one, after a pause, they just filed out of the room. It was just Jesus left alone with the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. So he replied, I do not condemn you either. Go, 
from now on, sin no more. In that, woman, in that moment, this woman came to know John 3.17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It wasn't that Jesus was throwing away the law or contradicting the law at this point. Jesus knew this was true. She should have been stoned for her crime. That, that was a fact. That was true. But he came to redeem guilty people, including this woman, who were under such condemnation. He came to set captives free, and that's what he did. There's so many more stories of how Jesus and the writers of the New Testament were actually truly revolutionary in their treatment of women and their respect and their value for women, especially at that time. But even still, many today claim, the Bible doesn't go far enough. It's still discriminatory toward women. At this point, you should be asking yourself, says who? Says who? Who is it that defines these women women's issues? Who determines what roles and responsibilities women should have in distinction from men? Is it us, people, men and women, or is it God? Hopefully you look not to man, but to God, the creator for his blueprint on women. I can't control what you do with God's word, of course, but whether you accept it or reject it. But I can clearly communicate his word to you that that's my job, and that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to expose you to God's plan for the godly woman. For in the court of opinion, God's opinion is the only one that matters. There's a, a lot of controversy that swirls around this topic today. But at the end of the day, I hope you care most about what God says in his word on these issues. Three weeks ago... Before the holidays, we started again to Titus chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, to see for ourselves what God says about women. As you know, we're, we're studying the book of Titus. We're going verse by verse through this book of the Bible. And so what is his plan for women? What is his blueprint? Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 especially, they give us a large part of that picture. God's plan for women. In particular, from Titus 2, 4 through 5, we set out three weeks ago to study seven marks of godly younger women. Seven marks of godly younger women. Last time, we covered the first four marks. Today, we're going to finish it up and cover the final three. But before we get into this, I want to take things a step further. So it's almost going to be like two sermons in one this morning. Because before we get back into Titus 2... I want to first explore the issue of women's roles, big picture, the big picture of that, from Scripture as a whole. In other words, before we pull out our microscope and take a really detailed view at verse 5 of Titus 2, I want to make sure you first have the bird's eye view of this issue, the issue of women's roles in the Bible. Paul, in Titus 2, he, he's just summarizing women's roles. He knows them. People and Crete know them, Titus knows them, he's summarizing. But before we look at his summary, I want to show you from Scripture, of course, the bigger picture. So to start, we're going to first springboard off of Titus 2. I want to show you women's roles from Scripture, a little bit bigger perspective. Then we're going to come back to Titus 2 and finish up verse 5. That's what we're going to do. That's our game plan for this morning. First things first, when we're talking about women's roles in the Bible, we're really talking about marital roles, marriage roles, in other words. The special instruction women receive in the Bible mostly relates to how they interact with their husband and their children. Same thing applies to men. It's mostly about how they interact with their wives and their children. So if we want to learn about women's roles, we want to really learn about marital roles. They're really one and the same in Scripture. Normally, I cover marital roles when I do premarital counseling. That's what you do. So I figured, why not? I would take you guys through a little bit of free premarital counseling this morning. That's what we're going to do. Now, technically, it's actually always free. But one time, though, I did have a couple come into my office at my old church for premarital counseling, and they thought it cost money. 
And they were ready to pay. They were like, oh, so how much is this going to be? And the thought crossed my mind. It's you know, under the table transaction, but no, I told them it was free. Anyway, the issue of marital roles, it's one of the first topics we cover in premarital counseling, marital roles. Preparing for marriage, it's like building a house. If you want that house to last any significant length of time or a storm, you need a solid foundation. And marital roles are a large part of that solid foundation. You have to understand what God expects of the husband and the wife if you're going to please him in marriage, and that should be your goal, to honor God in your marriage. Let's start with this. What is the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? It doesn't get much more foundational than that. Marriage has both a a vertical and a horizontal purpose. Vertically or in relation to God, the purpose of marriage is to glorify God. That makes sense. That should be obvious to you because we're to do all things to the glory of God. And marriage by no means is an exception. And really Ephesians 5, it goes further than this. It tells us that marriage is actually a picture of Christ and the church. So really when you get married, you get to experience in a very unique way what Christ did for the church. And you get to glorify God in in a very special way as well. But there's also a horizontal purpose for marriage or a purpose in relation to your spouse. So what is that? What is the purpose of marriage kind of on a human level? Well, let's find out. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. If you've been paying special attention over the past couple of months, you've probably noticed it kind of seems like we turn to Genesis 1 or 2 or 3 a lot. And you'd be right, that's true. We have been turning to the first three chapters of the Bible a lot. That's because in in Titus, Paul, he's dealing so much with what it looks like to be a godly man or woman or husband or wife that you've got to go back to the beginning, to those first chapters of the Bible to see how God intended us to be. Now, we've screwed it up quite a bit. We've come a long way in the wrong direction. But nonetheless, we want to see in these first couple chapters of the Bible... God's intention for men and women and husbands and wives. So that's why we keep turning to the first few chapters of Scripture, each time looking at them from a a different angle. And you would do well to really familiarize yourself with these first few chapters of the Bible. They are critical chapters. Now you know the drill, Genesis 2. God creates Adam, throws him in the garden, tells him some stuff. Let's pick it up at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God wasn't finished with creation. He's almost finished, but not quite. Man was alone, and that wasn't a good thing. So God sets out to make Adam what? What does it say? A helper suitable for him. This word in the Hebrew for helper, it's just that, one who helps. And when it says a suitable helper, it simply means that someone who is corresponding to him. Someone who is like him. God wanted to make for Adam someone who is just like him to partner with him, to be with him. So what does God do? Verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Why is God doing this? Why is God parading all these animals in front of Adam? The purpose is not just for Adam to name them. Rather, it's for Adam to realize that none of these Adam, none, none of these animals were suitable helpers. None of them were corresponding to him. He would have looked at an ox and said, yeah, I guess this could maybe help me plow a field, but that's pretty much it. It's not really like me. I can't partner with this. It's not a helper corresponding to him. So, like it says at the end of verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of this whole ordeal, Adam felt lonely. 
he, he would have put it together, male animal, female animal, male animal, female animal. And he was without a counter, a counterpart. So verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here the scene is repeated, except this time God does not create an entirely different creature. Sort of. I would take that back a little bit. Women are pretty different. But you get the picture. This time things were different because Adam immediately knew this was his suitable helper. His corresponding helper. This was his helpmate, as some translations have it. This was woman who corresponds to man. Perfect compliments coming together. And we get to verse 24, the famous verse. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Premarital counseling, we call this verse, leave, cleave, and weave. Because that's what you do in marriage. You First, you leave the authority of your parents behind. Second, you cleave to one another. And then finally, you weave into one flesh. This count in Genesis 2, it tells us about the creation of marriage. It's one of the first things God does. It's before the fall. It was good. It's part of his perfect plan. And we also learn from this text the purpose of marriage on a human level. So what is it? What is the purpose of marriage on this horizontal level? If you had to pick one word, I would pick companionship. Companionship. Because, like it says, it was not good for man to be alone. He needed a partner. He needed a lifelong companion corresponding to himself. That's why God created this thing we call marriage between man and woman. If you're taking notes, this is the first concept I want you to be familiar with, companionship. You can write that down. The first concept. We're going to look at three concepts before we get into things here. The first is this, companionship. Remember, first, things, first thing we're doing, we're taking this big picture look at the issue of women's roles or marital roles in Scripture. And along these lines, the first concept I want you to be familiar with is companionship, which gets into the, the purpose of marriage on a horizontal level. Second concept I want you to become familiar with is equality. Equality. Once you know what that means, I also want you to know what that does not mean. That's the second concept you, you have to get to understand roles before we get to roles. It's equality. We're already in Genesis, so just turn back one chapter to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 2, it's like a recap of day 6. Genesis 1, it's the whole deal, start to finish, off the first six days. Let's look at the sixth day again. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A lot going on in these few verses, as you know, but just notice a few things here. First off, notice both man and woman are created equally in the image of God. Do you see that? Do you see that in the text? Mankind, male and female, they're both made in God's likeness. And they equally share in the glory of God's image. And so there is then an equality here between men and women when it comes to their value before God. 
Neither is more valuable than the other when it comes to God's eyes. He equally values man and woman as his creation made in his image. He cherishes them both. They're both precious to him. That equality is very important to understand. And there's another sense of equality in these verses. Notice God blessed both of them and God directed both of them to be stewards of the earth. All these commands he gives, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. They weren't given just to the man. They're all in the plural. He he gave them to both of them. From the very beginning, this relationship was to be a partnership, not a dictatorship. There's, again, an important sense of equality, even in their mission before God. This makes perfect sense, because being made in God's image, men and women are reflections of the Trinity, which is alluded to in Genesis 1. God speaks of himself in the plural. As you know, God is one, but he exists in three persons. So there's both a unity and a diversity within the Trinity. Now, of the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, are they all equal in being? In other words, are they all God? Yes. Yes. Okay. Right answer. Yes. Likewise, men and women are equal in being. They're both of equal value. They share that same or that similarity. But here's an important distinction. Even within the Trinity, are there different roles among the different persons? Do they have different roles or different functions? Yes, they do. Even though they all equally share in being God, the Father, Son, and Spirit have different roles. Now, does this make one inferior to the other? No, of course not. In fact, this is part of their wonderful unity and diversity. It's the same way in marriage. Like the Trinity, men and women, they're created equal in being, but there are very important and legitimate differences, most notably in their roles. We're going to get to the roles in a little bit here, but the point you need to understand at this point is that the different roles, they have nothing to do with superiority. Men and women are simply equal, yet different. And this is a wonderful reflection of God himself. God created man and woman equal, but with different roles, so that they would work together and perfectly complementing one another and thereby reflect God's own image, because that's what God does. That was his plan, the different roles that God gave men and women. They're meant to complement one another in harmony. So anyway, that's our second concept, equality. It's what it means, it's what it doesn't mean. We've covered companionship, which is, that's the purpose of marriage on a horizontal level. Secondly, now we have equality, what that does and does not mean. Before we finally get to the issue of roles, one more concept I want you to get here before we, before we get there. It's the concept of headship. Headship. That's the third one. For example, the Bible says that Christ is the head of the church. And the Bible says that the husband is the head of his wife. So so what does that mean? What is this headship? Well, first let me tell you what it does not mean. Again, this headship is not talking about superiority. Man is not superior to the woman because he is the head. It's also not talking about value or worth. Man is not more valuable in the eyes of God because he is the head. Rather, this is talking about function. That's what it is. Talking about function. God has established the man to be the leader or the head of his family structure. That's what headship means. It means you are the leader. You are the head. And God intended for man to be the leader. Why would God do that? Why would God intend for man to be the leader, to be the head? Well, in short, it's because you can't have two heads. There can only be one. Imagine a football team where everybody acted like the coach. They were all calling plays, but nobody was running plays. It would be chaos on the field. Or imagine an army where everyone acted like the general and nobody did any fighting. They're all barking orders at one another, but nobody's doing anything. You can't have any everyone 
playing the role of the leader. God is a God of order, not confusion. Therefore, he designed man to serve as the leader so that there would be order in marriage. Now, I know this is one of those concepts that our world really takes issue with today. That they, they, don't, they don't like this. Now, how dare you say that the man is supposed to lead? That is, that's medieval. That's demeaning to women. How can you say that? All I can say is, it's God's design. It's, it's God's word. It's what he says. It's, it was his plan from the beginning. I'm not saying every man is a good leader or even close sometimes. This was God's blueprint for man and wife. Just read Genesis 1 through 3. Read Ephesians 5. Read 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. And you'll see for yourself this was God's intended order for marriage. So anyway, those are three concepts that we want to put in our back pocket to help us understand roles. Companionship, equality, headship. What those mean, what those do not mean. And if you're, if you're tracking with me, if you're following along, now you're ready to get to this issue of roles. What, what are the roles of men and women, husband and wife in marriage? What does God expect of them that are different? Well, if you want to know the roles of the husband, you're going to, have to come back next week. We're going to get to that when we study Titus chapter 2, verse 6 next week. And today, though, because we're in verses 4 through 5, we're focusing on the women. So what are the roles for women? What does God expect of wives? And if you remember, Paul in Titus 2, he's assuming that the young women he's talking to here are married. So what are the roles of the wife according to God? For the sake of time, I'm just going to give you two. Two primary roles of the wife according to Scripture. Two primary roles of the wife according to Scripture. And since you're probably already still in Genesis 1 and 2, the first role should be obvious. We've already mentioned it. The first role is to be a suitable helper. Straight from Genesis 1 and 2. To be a suitable helper. Remember we said earlier that this word for helper, it's straightforward. It just means one who helps. God created man to have dominion over the earth and to populate the earth. And God created woman to help with that. And remember, keep in mind, the idea, it's not of having a servant or, you know, like a personal slave. It's the idea of having a partner. This is a partnership. So the woman is to discern how she can best help her husband as he leads their family according to God's purposes. The man as head is primarily responsible for leading the family, but the woman is to partner with her husband under his leadership, promoting the same goals. So that's the first role of the wife, to be a suitable helper. And leads to the second role. Now what I figure we would do here, I just want to give you a warning. I have to apologize for this later. I'm going to swear from the pulpit. I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't do this, but submission. Okay, I said it. I'm sorry. I swore. But that's the wife's second role, to be a submissive helper. And it pretty much is a swear word today to even say the word submit or submission. That's how our world thinks of it. Sorry if I scared you there, by the way. (laughs) But as the wife is to be a suitable helper to her husband, God also calls her to be a submissive helper to her husband's leadership. Now, I understand there is a ton of abuse out there when it comes to this idea of submission. And we're going to get to that later, but if you, if you don't like the idea of submission, then your problem is with Scripture. Because in the Bible, it's just in every, every instance when God instructs wives, this comes up. And let me just show you firsthand, so you don't have to take my word for it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at a couple of verses here. Ephesians chapter 5, it's a very well-known verse in God's instructions for husbands and for wives. Just for the wives this week, verses 22 through 24 summarizes their role and what their responsibility in their marriage before God. Let's, let's read it. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Pretty plain and straightforward right there. Now, don't get me wrong. Women should not submit to men. That's not what it's saying. Women are not supposed to submit to men, but wives are supposed to submit to their own husbands. So it's a husband-wife thing, not a gender thing. Colossians 3.18, I'll just read that for you. It says the exact same thing. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Or one more. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Pretty close to the end of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3. One more passage here. First Peter 3, 1 through 6 and 7 gives a lot of instruction to the wife in particular and a little bit to the husband. You definitely want to familiarize yourself with this, with these verses. But let's just read verses 1 through 2. First Peter 3, 1 through 2. In the same way, Peter says, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So there it is again, over and over and over again, it shows up for wives to be subject or to be submissive to their own husbands. What does that mean, though? And what does that really mean? First, let's talk about what it does not mean. And just to reiterate from before, for wife to submit to her husband does not mean that she is inferior to her husband or unequal. Not what we're talking about. It does not mean that the husband is infallible or that the wife is unintelligent. It does not mean that the husband should be a dictator or that the wife should be a doormat. As we'll see next week, the husband is to be a servant leader who lovingly and sacrificially leads his wife. If the husband is barking orders and never serving, then he really misunderstands Submission. Again, more on this next week. But to the guys, just briefly, remember, you're trying to lead like Jesus, not Hitler or Stalin. Just keep that in the back of your mind. That will help you. Your leadership and her submission, it's not about you bossing her around all day. Rather, what model of leadership did Jesus leave behind for you? It's a model of sacrificial service. Not easy, but sacrificial service. You are to serve. You are to lay down your life for her. And in return, the wife is to submit herself to the God-ordained leadership of her husband. The word for submission itself was originally a military term, meaning to arrange or to rank under. and signifies order and arrangement. And the word literally means to order oneself under a leader. Pretty straightforward, to order oneself under a leader. Here's the kicker, though. In all the verses we read, no exception, all the verses we just read, the command to submit, it's in the middle voice. Now, you probably don't know what that means, so I'll tell you. It indicates that this submission is meant to be a voluntary response to God's will. In other words, the husband is never called to force his wife to submit. Rather, the wife is called to willfully submit herself under her husband because of her devotion to God. Submission is something the wife does, not something the husband demands. If you need to, write that down. Submission is something the wife does, not something the husband demands. So guys, look. I've made this mistake myself in the past, but you don't have a card that reads submit that you can play in your, in your you know, deck. You don't have that card. If you're not getting your way, you, you can't play the submit card. Rather, the wife has a card that reads submit in her deck. The card applies to her, but she has to play it herself. That's how it works. Now, what you're probably thinking to yourself, hey, what if my wife never plays a submit card? That's not under your control, nor your concern. Your concern is to worry about how you can be 
the loving and sacrificial leader God called you to be and leave the rest up to him and to her. You need to focus on being the man God wants you to be. Again, more on that next week. But to, back to the women in Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.18, which we read, a little phrase is added that you need to catch. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. What does it say next? As unto the Lord. Women must remember that their submission to their husbands is not motivated by their husband's excellence or their husband's great leadership skills or their husband's loveliness or pretty much anything good about their husband. Their submission is motivated by their submission to God. Submission is a God issue, not a husband issue. Your husband may be a poor leader who makes poor decisions, but this is an obedience to God issue. You might say, well, what if your husband's really ungodly, maybe even unsaved? Well, still, as 1 Peter 3 says, there's no exceptions. God calls you to submit and to show your husband the excellence of the gospel through your chaste and respectful behavior, and that's going to win him over. 1 Peter 3 is your chapter. But again, there, this is still an obedience to God issue. So that's it. These are the two primary roles of the wife, according to Scripture, to be a suitable helper to her husband and also to be a submissive helper to her husband. Understand, it's really, it's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to marriage roles. We, we could do a series on it, but we're going to leave it here for the sake of time. If perhaps, you know, maybe I, I piqued your interest, maybe you're still a little bit confused, you're wondering, how could God really call women to do this today? I mean, does this apply to the 21st century? If you still have more questions, you can always talk to me or even Angel after. But I figure I'd give you a resource if you want to take this a little further on your own. There's a good book for this, Martha Peace's book titled The Excellent Wife. It's a good book if you want to go more into, into depth on that issue. Martha Peace's book, The Excellent Wife. I would recommend that. But with our remaining time, I want to revisit Titus chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. So why don't you turn there now, Titus 2, 4 through 5. Because technically this was all, I guess you could say, introduction to our text for this morning. We're really intending to go Titus 2, verses 4 through 5. Three weeks ago, we set off to study seven marks of godly younger women from Titus 2, 4 through 5. We covered the first four last time. It's just straight from the text. You can look at verse 4. Regarding younger women, they are, number one, they love their husbands. Number two, they love their children. Number three, they are sensible. Number four, they are pure. Those are the first four marks of godly younger women. And now we're going to round off the list. The final three, you can just read them straight from verse 5. Number five, they are workers at home. Number six, they are kind. And number seven, they are subject to their own husbands. Now, here's the good news. In in our extended preview that we just did this morning, we've pretty much covered these final three marks. So this is going to be brief, but let's finish this off, starting with number five. They are workers at home. That's the fifth mark of godly younger women. They are workers at home. Now, this is nearly the same as being a suitable helper. It really is. Why does God call women to be workers at home? Because that's how they can best serve as suitable helpers in the household. I do want to pause here, though, and, and point out a few things concerning women being workers at home. For one, Scripture nowhere says women should only work in the home. In other words, the Bible doesn't forbid women from working outside the home. Proverbs 31 actually makes it pretty clear that the excellent wife was pretty industrious. As John read this morning, the excellent wife contributed to the household, even the the finances, the well-being of the household. This is what you need to understand, though. It comes down to priorities. It's the most important thing. Just get your priorities straight. I mean, God calls a woman to be a suitable helper and to be a worker at home. He's telling her this is what her priorities are. Number one, God. That should be obvious. Number two, her husband, because that's who she's one flesh with. And number three is her household, which includes the kids. Number three, household. And then number four would be working outside the home. Those are the priorities. 
Christian women must not buy the lie of our culture that it's, it's superior or more virtuous for them to abandon the household outright for the workplace. Women in record numbers are abandoning their children to daycare centers and families. They just become slaves to this two-income idea. And you can see how that's wrecking families. Being a worker at home, which includes being a mother, is such a high calling in God's eyes. I would say, don't sell yourself short by being so quick to leave the home. And I would say, don't squander your gifts on a job when you could really put those gifts to good use in the home. I know that's like a 180 from what our culture says, but use your gifts to mold your children to follow the Lord. Being a mother, by far, most important job on the planet. I believe that. And so if if you have to work, look, it's okay. It's okay if you have to work, but just understand your priorities and put the home, the household, your husband, your kids, the home, the place where it needs to be on your list of priorities, and God will reward that. I understand this is very counterculture to our world today, and, and talking like this, at least outside these doors, gets you slandered. But see the value, ladies, of your God-given role and, and prize it. Enjoy it. God's not going to ask you how much money you made when you stand before him. He's not going to be concerned about what career you had and how well you did. But he is going to ask you how well you were a steward of your children and your home. So bring God honor and praise for being a good and faithful steward of the home. It's the fifth mark of godly younger women, the workers at home. Six on our list, they are kind. Sixth mark of godly younger women, they are kind. I'll be brief with this one. You know what this means. Wives, young wives here, need the reminder to simply be kind, nice, gentle. That's it. The only question that comes up here is, I guess, why do they need to be reminded this? Why did Paul feel the need to include this one in this list, that they would be kind? Just picture the situation. I'm sure it's not hard to imagine. Three kids running around the house, screaming. They're out of control. You barely got any sleep last night. Your husband has gone at work. The house is a mess. You've got a ton to do. You just want a little peace and quiet. Your kids just refuse to settle down. The husband comes home. He has a hard day. He wants to relax. Do you think at that point you're going to experience any temptation to be unkind? Okay, you get the point. You get why Paul includes this here. I think that's where he's getting at. He knows that young wives and young mothers, they're going to encounter plenty of situations. I mean, too many to count. Plenty of situations that are going to tempt them to respond harshly, without grace, without kindness. And so even they need that reminder to bear that fruit of the Spirit, to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, kindness. And so wives, do that. Remember to always be kind. That's the sixth mark. Let's finish this off. Let's look at the seventh mark of godly younger women. Number seven, they are subject to their own husbands. Straight from verse five, they are subject to their own husbands. And here, we already covered this. Now you know why I want to do that kind of extended introduction because we really, we already covered all of this. Paul is teaching the exact same thing here in Titus 2, only in condensed form. Paul is summarizing here, which is why I want to look at the bigger picture first. But here in Titus 2, we have the exact same verb for submission and the exact same idea. Same middle voice, same everything. Like we said before, I just want to repeat myself. This is not a superiority issue. It's not an inequality issue. Before God, men and women, they're equally loved equally valued, equally made in his image. But this is a function issue. And God has established the husband to be the head or to be the leader of the household. Keep in mind, if you have a problem with submission, no Christian is exempt from submission, even the men. Men, you are. God commands you to submit. Every Christian, every person is commanded to, for example, submit to the government. Romans 13. No exceptions. You have to submit to the ruling authorities. This is just simply a reflection that God is a God of order and not confusion. Even within the Trinity, like we talked about before, 
The son submits to the father. Jesus likes submission. He joyfully and willfully submitted himself to the father's will. And it was a good thing. He was not begrudging it. He was not complaining. It was a wonderful thing. And really, we see from Christ's life the blessedness of a humble and dependent submission. His submission was wonderful because it honored God, and that's the point. He was honoring God with it. It's the same with godly wives. Again, I know there's there's a ton of abuse when it comes to the idea of submission. But to repeat myself yet again, to you have to remember at the end of the day, it's a submission to God idea. Husbands, you're by no means off the hook. Next week, you're going to find out you actually have a much bigger hook to deal with and what God calls you to do. But for now, ladies, understand, this is the role that God calls you to fill. doesn't mean you can't discuss things with your husband. doesn't mean you, you don't have a say. It doesn't mean you don't have a voice. You should, because remember, it's a partnership, not a dictatorship. But remember, God looks to you and calls you to joyfully and willfully submit your leadership to your husband's leadership. There is a purpose to this, actually. It's not just for the fun of it that God commanded this. Look at Titus 2.5. Look at how the verse ends. There's a purpose clause in here. Why should wives subject themselves under their husband's leadership? He says, so that, wives will be subject to husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. That's your purpose. This final phrase actually governs all of verses 4 and 5. So, all seven marks that we've studied, they're all a part of a woman's testimony to the world. If any young, young woman fails to love her husband, love her children, be sensible, pure, work her at home, kind and submissive, then the reproach falls not only on her, but also on God. That's the issue. That's the problem. The world is patiently watching Christians, just waiting for them to mess up. And they're so quick to label you, you're just a hypocrite now. Look. You sin. You're a hypocrite. And what does that do? It gives them yet another reason to write off the word of God. Saying, oh, just forget the Bible. Look at how Christians are. Let's take just a quick example. You all know the guy. Harold Camping. Made, made the headlines last year, you know, May 21st, and then October 21st. Predicted that Christ would return and, and gather all of his people to, back to him. Of course, that day came and went, and and we who are believers, we all knew this guy was a phony, he's a false believer, a false teacher. But how many people in the world have used his failure as a reason to reject Christ and to ridicule Christ? A lot. And so through his foolish behavior, the reproach not only fell on him, but also on God's word. That's the problem. And the same thing can happen to young wives. When young women who claim to follow the Lord but fail to do so and hypocritically abandon his standard, the reproach falls not only on them, but also on God's word. So that's what's at stake when it comes to these issues, men's roles and women's roles. The respect and the honor of God and God's word are at stake. Just as a final thought, I know the world looks down on traditional God-given roles. They despise them. Maybe some of you even here this morning, you're embarrassed. You're embarrassed to, to hold to them and to kind of to live by them. Let me encourage you with this, though. As the world in record number abandons God's plan for the family, what's been the result? What's been the fruit of that? Has it been good or bad? Skyrocketing divorce, terrible parenting, broken families. Pretty sure I don't have to convince you of the seriously negative results of the world's plan. And now solid families are the exception, not the rule. If you think it's bad now, just wait 50 years. I mean, it's going, it's going worse. It's getting worse. But this gives you a real opportunity to witness to the world and to bring God honor. Live by this standard. Cherish God's plan for the family and especially his plan for young women. And then let the world see. Let them see that the joy, the peace the blessedness that results. Let them see your happy marriage, your well-behaved kids, your family stability. 
They'll take notice. They'll be forced to stop and consider what's different about them. That the Christian couple over there, why are they different? Why, why are they thriving when everyone else is getting divorced and their kids are out of control? A German philosopher once said, show me your redeemed life and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Take him up on that offer. Remember, the world is watching, so take seriously this standard, this plan for the family in Titus 2, and see the impact that it has on the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we bow before you and we thank you for your plan. We thank you for your blueprint that we've taken a glimpse at this morning. God, do you know what you're doing? Your plan is, is good, it's true, it's perfect, it's better than anything we could come up with, and though our world is abandoning your plan in record number, that they are running far from it, Lord, help us not to do that. May we at this church be about your plan for the family, for the husband, and, and today in particular for the wife. Pray for the women here. Some of them are struggling with living according to your plan. It, it's not easy. Lord, we're sinners. Sin breaks marriages and, and roles. It's, it becomes hard. It becomes a real challenge to do what you call us to do, both for the men and the women. Pray for any in here, and especially the ladies, Lord, that you would strengthen them. Strengthen them by the example of Christ and the power of the Spirit to persevere in what you call them to do. To love you first and foremost. Remember that what you call them to do, it's a reflection of their love for you. So help them, help all of us to do what you call us to do, to be the men and women you call us to be, and may our families and lives flourish as a result as we really give ourselves over to to living like this, to living how you call us to live, Lord. Help us to, to see the peace and the joy that comes from that. Bless us, bless this church as we go from here. Bless the families of this church. May we be real examples to the world. In your name we pray, amen.